You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining me for tonight's live stream. I am very excited about tonight's guest uh, and to have a discussion with Dr. Todd Bolin, professor of biblical studies at Multnomah Seminary. He's somebody whose work I have followed for I don't know, at least 15 years now, and have appreciated his work and his efforts to highlight the importance of the geography of the Holy Land when it comes to interpreting the Bible. This is something that um, is very important to me. It's a skill of looking at the geography of the Holy Land that I have worked with my children on. You know, whenever there's a place that we would read, when we read through the Bible together and a place is mentioned, we stop. We take the time to look on the map and try to get oriented. So I want to hopefully convey some of that um, information and importance of that discipline to you tonight in this stream. And if if you've been following my channel for a while, you know that uh, I periodically like to do content to try to help uh, equip and, and train Christians to get more accurate interpretations of the Bible. I know it's very popular today to have an approach to Scripture where we read and bring our own biases to the text, but part of my aim in this podcast is to try to help you overcome our postmodern biases and orient ourselves to the meaning of the author. And sometimes that means we have to do some work to bridge that cultural gap between us and the world of the Bible. And geography is a critical part of building that bridge. And that's why I'm so excited to have uh, Dr. Boland's help today with this topic. Now, I want to let you know this is a pre-recorded interview, because as you're going to see in a minute, we have a lot of visuals to bring you. And I didn't want to have all the pressure of trying to do that live. So, but even though we aren't live, I still want to invite you to add your voice, put your comments on the premiere. Let me know your feedback about the discussion and uh, what you're finding helpful about this. Also, please make sure to share the stream. Um, Share with another friend or mom, your pastor maybe who needs these kinds of resources, even if you aren't comfortable with sharing it publicly on social media, that's okay. I get that, but maybe put in an email and send it to a few people that you know that uh, could find this content helpful. Okay. With all of that in place, I want to bring on Dr. Todd Bolin onto the show. Welcome. Thank you, Krista. It's good to be with you. It's wonderful to have you here. Now, I know that you're probably going to be new to a lot of my listeners, so maybe you can give us kind of the one-minute introduction to you and and your ministry. What should we know about you? Sure, yeah. I was, uh, well, my life changed, say, in fall of 1990 when I went to Israel. Two things happened. Number one, I met my wife. And uh, we've been married 30 years and uh, later this summer. And and uh, I fell in love with the land of Israel. And so a few years after that, I got a graduate degree in, bibl- in uh, biblical history. 
and archaeology and geography studies there. And so I helped to start a school uh, there outside of Jerusalem. And I lived there for 11 years teaching students from the Master's University. Our campus is called the Israel Bible Extension. And so that's where I was able to develop just more of my love for, for the biblical places, seeing the how geography helps things to make sense. Now, today I'm back on the California campus teaching general Bible classes, Old Testament survey, New Testament survey, but also I'm still using that geography to help my students love scripture and and, and want to follow God more faithfully. That's wonderful. And um, I would love for you to share a little bit more about your experience in living in the Holy Land and leading students into a better understanding uh, of geography, especially as it pertains to interpreting the Bible, like what were the typical kind of aha moments or, you know, what did students come in with a fluency level of about biblical geography? And then what did they grow into? Yeah, I like that word fluency because it, it really is. Geography is like another language. We think about, you know, if we're going to understand a text, you need to know the language and and you need to know the, you know, in English or if you're studying it in the ancient language, you have to know those. Well, geography is is part of the context, and so the students have to become fluent uh, in or, in the land in order to make sense of it. Uh, otherwise, I'll give you this example: that these these places are just names. I remember uh, I was not in Israel at the time; I was here in the states when someone was reading a passage, and there was some names, and they they were foreign sounding names, and they just replaced them. They said a name, a name, a name, and and what understanding the geography does for my students uh, studying at Ibex is to to transform what, what are foreign names to really become friends. I mean, you really like, I, Megiddo is no longer just a, a weird name I don't know how to pronounce or whatever, but but I, I can see myself, I'm standing there, and there go the armies of Pharaoh and David and Josiah and, you know, or the name Capernaum, come, you know, comes up, and it's not just, you know, a, a place, but it's Oh, that's where the synagogue was, or or Jericho. Um, you know, you hear the phrase, you know, the Bible's in living color. Well, you're seeing the colors of the brown wilderness, and in the middle of that, Jericho, this oasis. Um, students would would get an understanding of the regions of the land, so they're not just labels. I remember when I was in Sunday school, you hear the label Galilee or Samaria, but 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 you're all your senses are engaged. And when you're standing on the edge of the Dead Sea, you know, in the oppressive heat, and thinking about what that meant as David is running away from Saul, or when you're uh, at Herod's Harbor at Caesarea, and that was always a favorite place for students, uh, the cool breeze is coming off the Mediterranean, and they're thinking about not only Herod's great construction project, but they're thinking about his grandson who died there in the theater, because he didn't give glory to God. And then they're thinking about Paul being in, in a prison there. In fact, what I just did there was connected three events that occurred in one place that for the person who doesn't know the geography might not have thought to make those connections. So all kinds of, yeah, like I said, aha moments, just light coming on, things making sense when students understand the geographical language of the Bible. What a wonderful example. I, I appreciate that. And um, I think that, you know, as we work our way through 
uh, the content today. So what I asked Dr. Boland to do uh, was to put together his top five examples of where geography plays a role in proper Bible interpretation. And we're going to go through those. We've, we've put them in uh, chronological order. So we're going to go from most ancient and then work our way up to uh, the time of Jesus. And we're going to intersperse in there uh, some pictures that Dr. Boland has selected. Now, in addition to being a professor of biblical studies, uh, Todd is also a wonderful photographer, and he actually sells his photography of the Holy Land through his website, and we'll get you connected with all of that later in the show. But he's um, generously allowing us to, to look at some of these uh, pictures that will help us have a mental picture in our mind of these places that we're going to talk about. And I love your heart, Todd, to uh, bring these resources to pastors and teachers to really enhance student learning, which is what we're going to demonstrate here in this podcast. So um, let's let's start with the most ancient uh, in your top five. And you said you'd never done this before uh, of picking a top five. So hopefully this was a little bit fun for you. Uh, we're going to start with the patriarchs. So set the context there for us. So geographically, when you think about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I, I wonder what most people think, because there are names in the Bible, um, but w without knowing what those names mean, it, it might not bring to life what exactly is going on. So I have a map here from the Satellite Bible Atlas, which is a really useful tool. And on the map, you can see this is the southern part of the of the land of Israel, then called the land of Canaan. God had called Abraham to this land, says, I'm going to give you the land. But most of the time, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all in the south. So you can see there the word Negev near Beersheba. That Beersheba is a major, major uh, site. Abraham and Isaac both are going to be at, at Beersheba in the Negev. So this is the geographical setting that, that you have to know for understanding the, the patriarch. So so what is it about the Negev that, that was so relevant to, to their lives? It, and here it is. It's south, and south means dry. Uh, same thing, you know, I live in Southern California, so the further south you go, it tends to be hotter and drier. It's the same climate dynamic in Israel. So uh, God is having... Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're living down in this in the drier area, in this Negev area. And so the site of Beersheba and the site of Gerar, and when readers uh, come across those names in the book of Genesis, what are they what are they finding? They're finding they're digging wells. Why are they digging wells? Because there's not enough water. And what else are they doing? They're fighting over the wells, right? They're disputing. Why? Because it's a tough place to make it. It's very different than areas up to the north in Galilee where it rains a lot. And uh, so here's a picture of Beersheba, uh, where it's dry. It's a brown area. You can see most of the year, um, Beersheba is, um, you know, th there's not rainfall. There's rainfall during um, just a few months of the winter. So you can see that uh, the Negev area there, that's the ancient ruin of Beersheba in the middle, and that's dry. I mean, that's the way it is most of the year. So so water is central to life, and, and also that's why they're going to leave 
That's why Abraham, I mean, Genesis 12, he gets to the promised land. Like God says, go and here's the land I'm going to give you. And Abraham goes to Egypt. Like, hey, well, what's that all about? And like, that's because there's not enough rain. Well, okay, so here's, a, here's an interesting thing. Is it because there's not enough rain or because Abraham doesn't trust the Lord? Um, because God can send rain. In fact, that's going to be a huge lesson for all of Abraham's descendants. That God is, He doesn't have any descendants yet, but God's promised to give him all these descendants. He's brought him to a land where they're going to have to trust God for the rain. You see that again and again in like the book of Deuteronomy. Here's another picture shows Beersheba when it's green, and you can see that it does it does rain January, February, the the main months when it's going to get some rainfall, and and God provides that. And so think about Abraham's son Isaac, and what was it like for him? It was it was um, also tempting to leave the land, but God spoke to him Genesis 26, and He said, Abraham, don't uh, excuse me, Isaac, don't leave the land. Stay or trust me and I will bless you. And what happened? Isaac obeyed, and God blessed him. And it says, Isaac reaped a hundredfold, which is it's a pretty good return on investment. Um, and that's that's this land. Here's a picture of Gerar uh, with lots of flowers, lots of yellow flowers. And that, that kind of, to me, is a nice image of the uh, site uh, of this the reality of the harvest and, and Isaac reaping so much. Yet then Jacob, so think about Jacob, and you know, what's the big defining thing about Jacob with his sibling, uh, his children's rivalry? Well, it's it's Egypt, right? And so Jacob's uh, destiny, destination is going to be in Egypt. And what's why? why? Why is he sending his sons down there? And they're coming back and saying, oh, we got to go and bring our younger son, Benjamin. Why? It's because of the famine in the land. Their famine, the, the Negev is more susceptible to that famine. They can't hold out as long because just the, the the lack of the rainfall that there is is even less. And so it really is. I mean, right from the beginning, here's a big point that geography helps us with: is to to see the dynamic of the land of Canaan. The land God chose to give His people was not a land with a river. Uh, like the Nile River or the Euphrates River. It was a mm. land where they had to depend on him. So that's why Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they're all men who have to trust God. And that's the question. Are they going to be men of faith? And of course, their wives, I mean, Sarah and the, 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 Rebecca, and they're, they're tested just as much. Are they going to trust the Lord to provide? And that's going to be the case for their descendants as well. What a powerful insight about the the geography, but also, you know, the I love it that you're drawing our attention to, you know, God is settling them in a land that is not like Egypt, where this this big river that's going to feed them. They're they're really gonna have to trust in God for their provisions. And that is definitely a theme. Our family has been reading through the Pentateuch, and you see that importance of God really wants his people to trust him uh, for their provision. So they kind of are forced into it. And if they're not going to trust him, it's it's going to be pretty obvious because they're going to start looking around for other solutions. So, all right, let's go into Jericho. This is the second one that, and again, we're going through kind of Todd Boland's top five um, aspects of scripture where geography really 
matters for our proper Bible interpretation. So the second one you've picked is Jericho. Uh, Tell us about that. Yeah, so why was it that God had his people enter the land from the east? I mean, they were coming from Egypt, that's south. He brings them around through the east into Jericho. And and that's one of the stories that I remember hearing about as a kid. I didn't hear a lot of geography that I that I remember, and maybe some of our listeners have uh, heard as well, how Jericho is strategically located to guard the routes that go up into the hill country. So by conquering Jericho first, they gain access up to the hills. Now, there's still battles to be fought, of course, but Jericho is very strategically situated for that reason. And I have a picture here that shows Jericho from an airplane. And you can see there how the hills on the left, those are the hills of the wilderness. And Jericho is this uh, uh, fortified city that just right next to those hills. And so whoever's you know controlling that city, they determine who goes up into those hills or not. So that's why Joshua and his uh, men have to uh, circle the city for those seven days. Now, here's another interesting thing about uh, that ties into that, and in, in that God tells the Israelites not only to burn the city, right? Don't take any plunder, forsaken is going to sin, and we have that whole thing. But God has said, uh, don't take any of the plunder uh, and burn it. Uh, I mean, like that doesn't make any sense. I mean, God, don't you know? Uh, this is a strategic city, and we're, we need to fortify it ourselves so we can protect the land that you're giving to us, God. And you see what he's doing here? And just it's the same thing as what we're talking about with the patriarchs. He's going to force them to trust him because the most strategic city that guards the routes into the hill country is now going to be empty. Right? I mean, that's what God said. He forbade them to rebuild Jericho. Jericho was, I like this concept of first fruits of the conquest, right? So this is something that God had had instructed them in the law. Uh, He said, the first that you get, the first of your crop, the first of your harvest, today we think about it, the first of our offerings, belongs to God. He deserves the first and he deserves the best. And it also, does it not, right? If If you give out of the beginning, the first part of your paycheck, doesn't that force you to trust him that you're gonna have enough to get to the end of the month? Well, the Israelites are going to tr- have to trust God that he's going to give them another city and another city uh, if they're going to burn this one. And and if they're going to not fortify it. So uh, that's one thing that, that isn't spelled out. This is really kind of the whole underlying theme of our talk uh, this evening, that um, geography is is just latent in the Bible. It's just, it's all over, but... It doesn't explain it. So, right, so that's where if we just know a little bit, it just brings it to life. You're like, oh, that makes sense why God did it that way. Very good. Uh, that's so interesting um, The to think about. I never really had thought about that, about why God would say, you know, burn all of the, the store, you know, the, the food that was stored up why would he do that? Well, it's again, calling them to trust. And um, I didn't realize, you know, how Jericho is situated near all of those hills and what a strategic location that is. So super fascinating. Um, Okay. Do we, do we want to move on to the next one? 
Yeah, let's do that. Okay, let's talk about David. So we're working our way chronologically. We started with Genesis and the patriarchs. Then we looked at uh, the book of Joshua and and city of Jericho. Now we're moving into the book of uh, Samuel. So talk to us about King David, because there's a quite a lot of geography uh, involved as he's fleeing from King Saul. Exactly. And we're, you know, so familiar with the story of David and Goliath. It's such a wonderful story in so many ways. But after that, I mean, what happens, right? When Saul gets jealous and, and, and David is now forced to run. And so uh, the the Bible gives us so many names. <laughs> this is one of the things, and I, I wrote an article recently, it's not yet been published in the Lexham Geographic Commentary series that that one of the things that just dawned on me, I think I knew it, but just kind of like in a new way, like how many names when David's running from Saul, it's this place and this place and this place and that place. And uh, uh, I have a map here that shows the general regions of where David fled. And this is a, another map from the Satellite Bible Atlas. And and David is, is fleeing, and I'm not going to list off all the different names. I'll mention a couple uh, here, but notice the regions. Where is David going? He's going to two areas, the western frontier, known as the Shvelah, and the eastern frontier, known as the, the wilderness, the Judean wilderness. And that's a very arid, dry wilderness, not like you know, with lots of trees and everything, like in other parts of the world. It's it's very desolate. Now, why does David flee to, to these areas? Because they are the fringe. They're the, the border, remote frontier areas that, what, what does that mean? That means that Saul is going to be less likely to find him, and it means that people are going to be less likely to turn David over. There's a few times where David is kind of more in the middle of the country, he's passing through, and he gets turned in, like by the men of Ziph. Uh, so David's going to want to be out. In, so in the Shvelah here, let me give you an example. i got a couple pictures you can see of Adullam. So David goes to Adullam, and uh, that is out in the, the Shvelah where uh, it's a bit of a no-man's land. So it's in between the area of the Philistines and the area of of the Israelites. And, and yeah, you can see there the hills in the distance. That's where uh, the Israelites lived. And the hill in the center, that's a Dullam. So David goes there for Samuel 22, and he's hiding in a cave. And he's safe from the Philistines. He'd just run away from the Philistines. Uh, they they had captured him. He was drooling on his beard, in his beard, and sh- sh- scratching on the gate. And he gets away. But that place there at Adullam is something that the Bible doesn't explicitly say. But when you know the geography, you see, oh, it's a great place to hide so that Saul doesn't come and get him, and the Philistines don't chase after him. And it's no man's land. And, but who does come? A lot of David's brothers and other followers are going to join him here at Adullam. And there's the cave of Adullam. I have a picture of one of the caves uh, at Adullam. Uh, and we don't know exactly which cave David was in or whatever. He had 400 men who were gathered to him. David's going to write some psalms. This is an interesting thing that sometimes I think misunderstood. We'll talk about in Getty in a moment. But but I don't, I don't think David wrote the psalms. That, there's three psalms that David wrote. Uh, while he was at Adullam, I think two of them say when he was in the cave, probably not the cave, where he cut off Saul's garment. 
but this came because this is where he he was staying for quite some time when the men were gathering to him. So that's very interesting to read Psalm 142, Psalm 57, also Psalm 34, beautiful Psalms that talk about David trusting the Lord. Let's go over to the other side, over to the wilderness. And I got a few pictures here of En Gedi. So this is another ideal place for David to hide. Again, you read the name in the Bible, it's like, okay, En Gedi, but you know, what, what is that? Well, it it's an oasis in the wilderness. It's gonna, it's 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 remote, hard for Saul to get to, and and David thinks he can find some safety there, and, and he does for a time. But guess what? I mean, here comes Saul. Which what does that tell us? Saul is determined. I mean, he's going to go even all the way down to En Gedi. It's a long trek through the wilderness, and he's going to uh, David's going to uh, see him in in the in the cave when he comes in to relieve himself, and we know that story. So, so En Gedi, one of the wonderful things about En Gedi is that it has springs. So here's a picture of a waterfall where you can see uh, how uh, refreshing that would be. You're out in the wilderness. Imagine trekking for days and just looking for a water source and coming to this and being refreshed. And and that's 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 one of the things that the reader of the Bible understanding what did the original writer of Scripture want us thinking about when we read En Gedi. That's what we're thinking about. We're thinking about the spring. We're thinking about the water. We're thinking about how David is getting refreshed. And think about this. Okay, there's one psalm that David wrote uh, that explicitly says when David was in the wilderness of Judah, Psalm 63. It's a familiar one to many people. Oh, God, my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for, what do you think I'm going to say? For the waters of En Gedi. doesn't say that. My soul thirsts for you, oh God, more than the water. David's David's soul was thirsting for the Lord, although I'm sure, you know, he had to make sure his men had the water that that they needed. But um, this is, you know, one of the things we see in looking at how geography helps us understand David's flight from Saul is that he he's not leaving the land. He does on a couple of occasions, but he's staying in Judah. That's the promised land. David has been anointed to be the king. And he's he's forced, though, to trust the Lord without getting killed by Saul. And so that helps us to understand why he goes here and why he goes there. Very good. That, that's so interesting. I love the the imagery there of, of the waterfall and meditating on that. Um, now we think about uh, moving into the ministry of Jesus and the time of Jesus. Um, there's a section in the Gospels where it talks about Jesus uh, going to the other side sometimes, or um, one time he goes over to the Gadarene. This is such an important cue in, in the Bible, but if we, if we miss it, if we miss this geographical location, we might miss some of the importance of the, the, behind the story. So talk, talk to us about that. Exactly. And and the writer does signal to us, in fact, three writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all have this in their Gospels, and they signal right from the beginning. Now, this was in the region of the Gadarenes. Matthew says Gadarenes, and Mark and Luke say the Gerasenes, and, and those regions overlap. And, and But that's a signal to the reader, like, oh, we're going somewhere else. And then the next clue is, look at all the pigs, right? Like, wait a second. I mean, I know those aren't kosher. What are they? What are these you know, this huge herd of pigs doing. So here's what the ancient reader knew that we need to know, is that Gadara and Gerasa, these cities that are mentioned there, 
are in the Decapolis. Now, the Decapolis, that's the 10 cities. And actually, the number would vary. There would be more than even 10, but that was the name of, of this Hellenized area. That is a more Gentile area. So that's why they're having pigs, because these aren't, these aren't Jewish shepherds. These are Gentile herdsmen, and, and not just herdsmen, that one guy who had the pigs or whatever. But um, that, So that's very significant to understanding the story. So when Jesus goes to the other side, yes, geographically, right? And so I have a picture here that shows the Sea of Galilee. It's an aerial from the eastern side, and you can see the the lake from, you know, the whole of the Sea of Galilee with, um, and Jesus is on the far side of the lake. On the, It's going to be on the right side of this photograph. That's where he ministers most of the time. So the familiar cities of Capernaum and Bethsaida, the traditional Mount of Beatitudes, and on the right side of that photo. So he goes to the other side, that's the left side of the photo, or it's the south side, and that's the area of the Decapolis. Uh, let me uh, point you to another picture here. I have the, the Gadara Harbor area, um, and you can see uh, here the area where he landed. Now, when Jesus goes to the other side, and it's Gentile, He's not, I don't think, expecting to do ministry. I think he needs a break. It's been a busy day. I mean, we feel that way, don't we? Jesus too, right? In his humanity, he got tired. And he, you know, to to have a break. And and what what does he find? More needy people, right? And this this needy man, actually, I think there are two uh, men who are demon-possessed, if you look at all the Gospels together. And and Jesus serves them, and he heals. But that's, he's going to cast the demons out of them. That, I don't think, was what was uh, his intention by going there. But, um, but, but he does, he brings salvation to these men. This is in Mark 5. Uh, Matthew 8 also tells this story. And uh, uh, what, what, this is very interesting. There's something that, that could be missed if you're not ca- connecting the geographical dots. What does Jesus say to the, to the man who's now dressed and in his right mind? He's, uh, the man says, I want to go with you, which you're like, well, well yeah, I and mean, that's good. Like, right, follow Jesus or whatever. Jesus says, no. He says, go and and tell your own people, right? Who's your own people? I mean, these are uh, uh, the, 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 people, the Gentiles who live in the, in the Decapolis. Go and tell your own people um, how much the Lord has done for you. I'm like, oh, well, that's neat. Like, uh, And you kind of wonder, like, well, did he ever do that? He did. How do I know that? Because... A few chapters later, Mark 7 says that Jesus was back in the Decapolis. And then a few verses after that, Mark 8 now, it says um, that a crowd gathered around him. And this is in the area of the Decapolis. So so why is it that Gentiles are crowding around Jesus when his ministry was primarily to the Jewish people? It's because uh, this man who had been healed from the demon, and the pigs ran off into the water, because that man did what Jesus told him to. And he went and told people about him. So when Jesus returned to the area, there was this excitement, oh, we've heard about you and what you can do. And they gather around, and this is the the famous miracle of the feeding of the 4,000. Can we have the feeding of the 5,000? That's something else. That's a different location on the northern side of the lake. Feeding of the 4,000 is on the southern side of the lake. Uh, the previous one was with Jews. This is with Gentiles. Before it was 5,000, now it's 4,000. Uh, before there were 12 baskets left over. Now there's seven baskets left over, which 
maybe symbolic of the nations. I mean, 12 is for the tribe of uh, 12 tribes of Israel, but seven were the nations. And those are clues that are in the text that the perceptive reader and the one who knows the geography is going to pick up on those. And it's going to, what's he going to do? I'm make this point. It's going to enhance our understanding. It, it doesn't, I don't know if it changes the meaning. It's one thing I'm really going to emphasize. It's not like, I'll never tell people like, you. oh, you have to go to Israel or you have to know the geography. Uh, I mean, a lot of good and faithful men and women never did and don't. And they they serve God very faithfully. But but what do we get, right? We add this extra dimension. It's a, The story's enhanced, right? We, we enjoy it more. We appreciate it better because we see those details. That's very cool. I'm wondering if Bob would indulge us in putting the last picture back up, it makes me wonder in that story about the pigs and everything. I mean, I'm just noticing there's mountains here, there's water nearby. Like it, does that seem to fit the details of, of the story? Yes, it does. And uh, that's a great, great question and observation um, because the, says the pigs are grazing on the hillside. And so uh, in this particular photo, we're seeing the mountains in the distance. I don't think they're grazing there. That's a little distant away. Okay. But in the foreground, there's a brown hill. And that's where I would place the location of their grazing. And then when the demons are, are cast uh, into them, uh, they're going to run from that hill down into the water. This is, I, I can just add this and... Uh, Krista, you probably know, and other uh, listeners who uh, have been there may have been taken to a different place. Uh, there is another, I don't know if, if traditional is the right word, another location further uh, north on the Sea of Galilee that they say, oh, this is the place, Kersey, where the pigs ran into the water. And in fact, I usually stop there with my students because there's there's a, a steep hill down into the water and it's there's a place for the bus to pull out and park. So it's very convenient logistically for a tour guide to do that but um i don't think it's the right location based on based on the bible i mean it says it's in the region of the gadarenes and we know where gadara is it's to the southeast and so i, I wrote another article about this that um is i think it's very fascinating it's maybe a little deeper than some people would, would want to go, but it's it's also in this Lexham Geographic Commentary series, which is a more advanced resource for people who are uh, really wanting to dig in deeper. In that article, I explore the two possible locations and why is one a better candidate than the other? That's fun with uh, biblical scholarship. That's, that's the, that's the uh, fun part of, you know, just trying to work all, all those details out. Now we've got one more, and this one kind of goes a little bit backward in time, back to Genesis, um, uh, looking at Salem, Mount Moriah, and Jerusalem. And this is, I think, interesting because it really also pertains, I think, to us today and um, issues that are happening in our current context. So walk us through the location of Salem, you know, we hear about this mysterious figure, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and, you know, some, some of the geographical insights about that. Yes. So I thought this would be a great um, final uh, 
example to use because it's connecting the dots across the Old and New Testament, really across the millennia. We're spanning yeah. from Abraham to Jesus. And the names here may not always be obvious to the reader what's being talked about. So starting with Melchizedek, this is in Genesis 14. He's the king and priest of the Most High God in the city of Salem. Now, if you read that, you're like, oh, Salem, what is Salem? Is like that ever in the Bible again? Well, it is. Psalm 76 says that Salem is Jerusalem. So, ah, now, it's now the light kind of dawns you know, on it. Uh, the place where Abraham met this king and priest is Jerusalem, the future Jerusalem. And that, now, I don't think that's a prophecy per se. It's nothing predictive exactly, but it is a pattern, right? It's like we have here an interesting combination. We're not going to see this through ancient the, the time of, of ancient Israel. You're never going to have one man to be both a king and a priest. And God was very careful to separate those from different tribes. So David, he's the king, right? But Zadok, uh, he's the priest. He's from the tribe of Levi. Uh, David's from the tribe of Judah. But we have already this, this interesting occurrence of this Melchizedek. And not, not only that, he he's very important. How do you know that? Because Abraham gave tithes to him. Was that that means that that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham? Which is like, wait a second, how can that be? Because because God gave Abraham this amazing covenant promise. Okay, so we're going to have to keep on reading to see how the 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 dots are connected. And of course, you know, our readers who've read Hebrews know how those dots are connected. But let me throw in one other place name before we before we get there, and that is Moriah. This is also in the life of Abraham, where uh, God tells Abraham, take your son, your only son. That language is not accidental. (laughs) Take him to the place I will show you. And then he's going to go to the region of Moriah. Where is, where, is, where is that? And we're familiar with the story in Genesis 22 and how he almost sacrifices his, his son. But what does God provide? A substitutionary lamb. That's not a prophecy, but it is a pattern. Like, I think this might be important later on, right? This foreshadowing. Exactly. And it's not just theological. It's also geographical, right? When you, when you know that you know, Moriah is Jerusalem. How do I know that? Second Chronicles 3.1 says Solomon built the temple on Mount Moriah. So there it is. I mean, the temple is on Mount Moriah. So Salem is Jerusalem. And Moriah, the region of Moriah, is the region of Jerusalem. And that's the place where God provides a substitutionary lamb and the place where God tells David to build the temple where what's going to happen, right? sacrifices to atone for sin, substitutionary sacrifice. I mean, this is all, so really, I mean, you could say, like, nobody should be surprised when Jesus says to his disciples, I must go to Jerusalem. I mean, the disciples, they were kind of slow sometimes, right, like us. (laughs) And they're like, you know, oh, no, that's dangerous there. Like, they're going to, they want to hurt you. And no, I must go to Jerusalem, right? Because what does Jesus know? that he is the substitutionary lamb. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. God put these things in place thousands of years in advance. He revealed them to us in his word. 
including the geographical locations, so that when 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 it happens, we can. I mean, the chills, you know, go go down our back. We're just in awe of a God who put everything into place. I mean, the Lamb chosen before the foundation of the world, but the places as well, uh, so that when we see it come together, we just know this is not an accident, right? Jesus was was not a victim. Uh, Jesus, you know, the, God did not lose control on that, that Friday morning. But this is exactly how God designed it, so that our sins would be forgiven. Atom, for all those who place their trust in the Lord Jesus, that his death would be our death that is a substitute for us. And and he's the priest, right? I mean, he's the, the, the priest and the king of Melchizedek in the city. And uh, I'm a firm believer that Jesus is going to return to be the king in Zion. I mean, uh, Psalm 2, you know, I love Psalm 2 and Psalm 72 and uh, Isaiah 2 and 4 and, and all kinds of passages that speak about the coming of Jesus. Yes, he's the lamb, but he's a lion, right? And he's going to return to establish righteousness for his people. Where's he going to do it? He's going to do it at the place where Melchizedek set the pattern. Because Jesus is not just the king, he's also the priest. And so I just love how geography just brings to life precious truths of Scripture that are the foundation of my faith. And again, um, not that you can't understand without it, but it drives it deeper into my soul. And that's one thing, too. I don't know if I used the word before. Um, what is the value of, of knowing geography and of being in the places? Ex when you experience something, you remember it better, right? It sticks in your soul. So, and, and even, too, if I could just pitch for a second here, if you get the chance to go to the lands of the Bible, Israel, but there's also Jordan and Turkey and other countries, or, or also this, uh, moms, send your your kids there. Um, my daughter was there last year for a semester. Um, and so some, some people don't have that opportunity, but if you do, I mean, to go for a semester, that's what changed my life. Uh, you know, the, when, when I was in college and I went for a semester, and, and if you can make that happen somehow, some way, um, to, and that, that's not a, doesn't solve all the problems, right? I mean, let's, let's not pretend there's no, secret to the Christian life. I mean, the secret of Christian life is daily faithfulness in God's Word. And, and uh, but, but something that's very helpful is um, to, 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 to go there. And so to have it, what, what you experience, you remember much better than what someone tells you or, even, or what you read. That's a wonderful word. Thank you for that encouragement, Todd. I hope that someday I, I get a chance to to go to the Holy Land. I I do watch a lot of videos on uh, the Holy Land issues and um, discoveries and archaeology. It's it's kind of just a little side hobby of mine. But I I do hope that someday the Lord will grant me that grace that I'll be able to go. And I think I love how you're tying it into the Second Coming, and and even today, you know, when I think about Mount Moriah. You know, that's where the Dome of the Rock is. And, you know, it's the third most holy site in the religion of Islam. But if it's very rare that um, Christians ever get to go in the Dome of the Rock. But if you go in there, there, it, it, uh, you know, according to tradition, is the place 
where um, Abraham was there on Mount Moriah. Now, um, the story in the, in the Quran is a little different than than in Genesis, but um, it is uh, it is interesting to see that thread, um, you know, through the three major monotheistic religions of the world, all centering on that one geographical location. As we think about wrapping up here, I want to leave our people with a couple of suggestions uh, to get resourced um, about the geography of the Holy Land. Uh, you know, maybe something that uh, if we have any parents on the stream that they want to put in their homeschool library or their home library for their kids. Um, you know, any pics you might have for a, a, an atlas or that kind of a thing, especially if we're wanting to look things up with our kids as we're reading the Bible together as a family. Yes. You know, let me just recommend the, the book I mentioned before, the Satellite Bible Atlas. I, I use it as a required textbook in my Old Testament and New Testament survey classes, but it's, it's, it's more accessible. It's not just for college students. Um, any, you know, you know, use it, I have an 11-year-old son and, um, you know, he can understand, you know, it's so well because the map is on one side. And the explanations on the other, other the facing page, and you can just walk through history. Uh, you can um, start with Abraham, or just jump into where Jesus is, wherever you want to go. And the the atlas has full page maps. Everything is marked out, so it's easy to see. You're not shuffling around or flipping back and forth. It really is accessible, and it's introductory. So there are more advanced works out there. Um, but this is a really good, solid one for for many people, and and uh, I use it, recommend it, and um, readers can. It's on Amazon. Uh, we have it uh, on our website, BiblePlaces.com, as well. Um, so it's it's easy to to find and okay. and put to use. That's a new one for me. So that's that's good to know. Yeah. As we think about, too, um, another great resource, I want you to, to let people know about your, your website. As you just mentioned, BiblePlaces.com. Tell us about your blog and, and how people can get, get, get connected with you, as well as about your Bible Places photography. Yeah, so when I was living in Israel and traveling around, I was guiding these students to these sites again and again. Digital cameras came out, and so I just started taking pictures and building photo, photo collections and so this, we've been doing this for more than 20 years now, creating photo collections of the biblical sites. When I was, when I was a student, I remember the bus driver said, hey, here's a collection of 100 slides. Well, I don't need slides, and I don't want 100. I want 1,000. So I made a photo collection of 1,000 photos of Galilee. So all the different places in Galilee, uh, and then a, 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 another photo collection for Samaria, 1,000 photos from the region of Samaria. So... Um, Shiloh and Shechem and Caesarea and uh, then Jerusalem made a thousand for Jerusalem, but then Turkey and Greece and over the years built these out. And uh, more recently, here's the thing that um, I think is particularly helpful for for those who haven't been to Israel is we started organizing our photo collections by biblical book. So someone just do a study on Matthew. We just have a photo collection for Matthew chapter by chapter, verse by verse, every photo that relates to the, that story, that miracle, that parable, um, the, the crucifixion, the resurrection, 
uh, or, or Ruth, uh, my younger son now, he's doing a, he's in the National Bible Bee and doing the, the stu- they're studying Ruth this summer. And so I told them, uh, we're going to sit down and just go through these pictures of Ruth and see the fields of Bethlehem. And what is a harvest like? And what is a threshing floor like where Ruth was? And so what we've done in organizing these photo collections, just make it really easy. It's all in PowerPoint. You just flip through. There's notes that explain it and really useful for study as well as for teachers and pastors. It is a wonderful resource. And that's really how I found Todd about 15 uh, plus years ago is because of his photo collections. And so go check out his, his BiblePlaces.com website. He has a blog there. And um, it's just the whole thing is just a wonderful resource. Uh, make sure to follow his important ministry. Thank you, Todd, for hanging out with me for a while and being a good sport and doing this with me, a little different kind of show. But um, it's just been an honor to, to speak to you. Oh, it's been great fun. I really enjoyed this. Thank you, Krista. Thank you very much. All right, friends, that is it for this edition of the Theology Mom podcast. I want to encourage you uh, during the month of June, Monique and I have been asking people to consider uh, supporting the ministry. We're kind of doing a little bit of a mini uh, mid-year campaign um, and asking for your support. I know that many of you already financially partner with us, and we're very grateful for that. Thank you so much, because by doing that, that makes this work possible that Monique and I can be deployed as missionaries, speaking into issues like critical race theory and helping to equip and train Christians in biblical unity, God's vision of racial unity and not division, and God's vision for justice. And um, it is an interesting time. Uh, as uh, Todd and I were recording this this morning, uh, the, the Roe decision came out. And um, may we be prayerful in the days to come uh, to be thankful. May God have mercy on our country for our sins in this area. And may we continue to defend the faith with um, boldness and gentleness and respect Um, But let us also have a posture of prayer as that there will still be uh, much work to do on the state level. But most importantly, that the gospel will go out and change people's hearts, because that is the true hope uh, for change. And um, when we're thinking about the Bible, when we're thinking about things like geography, these things ought to help bolster our faith that we may know that our faith is true, that it's not based on myths or fairy tales so that we can make an argument in an ethical arena. Um, and we're making it from the posture of, we know that God has given us instructions and we know those instructions are real and true because these stories happened in real time and space and in history. So they're all interconnected conversations. And um, I bless you today to know that God is real and that we may trust him just as the ancient Israelites did for all things, um, that he will sustain his people, and may we be found among the faithful remnant. God bless you, and good night. Be sure to follow Theology Mom on Facebook, and like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube. Don't forget to catch Krista next week for more theology fun on Theology Mom, and all the things. Thanks for listening.